Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Fantastic to see everybody. Thanks again for coming to another uh, Word in Your Ear. Um, this is uh, being recorded in Islington, in the Islington pub in London's swinging N1 district. And I have to say, it is rammed to the gills. And I am not surprised, because tonight we're focusing on two groups with a strong connection, which both shone their torch on the life of the uniquely British suburbs and had a ton of hit records while they were doing it. And uh, the first of our two authors was, and I'd like to think still is, uh, the drummer with the jam. And they were described here, it says, and there isn't a rhythm section around that can touch them, declared cub reporter Mark Ellen in The Enemy in 1978. I just found that review in The Attic this evening. A review of the Reading Festival when they played with Sham 69, which we shall hear more of anon. So please welcome the mighty Rick Buckler. And we should just say that here it is, in fact, that Rick has a superb book out called, almost inevitably, That's Entertainment, My Life in the Jam. And so, uh, and we're going to start, I think, were we, by talking about possibly life back in Woking and, well, uh, here's, yes, here's a couple of pictures from back it. in yeah. time. The, the, these, uh, I'm sorry, the, these, are, these are my home scans of some of the pictures in Rick's book. I'm, I'm sure, I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, these are, th- this is... Flavor of give us an idea of Woking, the Woking that you grew up in in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, well, it was a pretty dreadful place. The Germans missed most of it, um, <laughs> which was unfortunate. There was nothing there that was worth bombing, really. Um, but they were knocking most of it down when I was growing up, which uh, thankfully the, the, uh, they should do. Um, but I suppose it, it was it was unremarkable in, in a lot of ways. There was um, there was the usual sort of redevelopment and during the 1950s. I was born in 1955. And so by the time I sort of um, was, you know, the 1960s started, uh, there was a lot of redevelopment going on there. Um, these are three school friends, two of them, well, myself and uh, Tony Pilot and Dave Waller, who was the original guitarist, um, rhythm guitarist with the gem. But they're both dead now, unfortunately, which is a real shame. Um, this, is, this is my mum and dad. Um, Tell us about your mum and dad. Uh, well, my dad was a postman. Um, uh, he'd sort of uh, 
come out of the railways after the war and uh, joined the post office, which was a good, solid job for, for him in those days. Um, but, yeah, very, very, very working class. Very, um, Baptist... They went to the Baptist church, is that right? Yeah, that's Quite right. regular churchgoers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, the Baptist church was just around the corner from us, and it was the only, the only thing I really liked about it was the fact there was lots of singing going on. You know, being Baptist, that's what they do most of the time, apart from dunking each other in water all the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm not religious at all. I mean, I've left no mark on me whatsoever. Um, but, yeah... So, what kind of music would, would, would they have been playing in the house? What, what did you grow up listening to in the household? Oh, crikey. Well, not a great deal, actually. Uh, most of the radio was, uh, was the comedy shows that were on Muck. You know, oh, yeah. You know, much like mucking about in the whatever it was. Much binding in the march. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> uh, that sort of thing used to come on on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, radio was king in, in, in the late 50s and early 60s, I suppose. So, was there a record player in the house? Was there a radiogram or anything like that? Not really. My older, I've got, um, I've got a twin brother and I've got two older brothers, and they really. Uh, I used to listen to what they were listening to. So they were listening to uh, the Beatles and the early Rolling Stones and uh, them, uh, those sort of bands. So I used to hear all that. Um, and, and still to this day, every time I, I hear uh, Hard Day's Night, it just reminds me of playing Skeletrics on the floor, you know what I mean? Because that was my Christmas present. And um, so those sort of, you know what music's like, it, it does invoke a lot of, um, a lot of memories f- from that, that time that you, you first heard that. Um, so yeah, it was my my brothers were they were the beatniks and the, you know growing up with uh, skiffle and, and that sort of thing that um, that I heard a lot of in my my really early uh, years. So how did you first start getting involved in music? Um, I mean, at school everybody used to swap albums. Albums were still quite expensive to buy, so everybody swapped albums. Um, and I think we started to sort of hang around with a lot of people who played. There was a, the old guitarist and stuff. So it was just wanted to do more than just listen to it, wanted to play. Um, I think I got left with, oh, you know, somebody had already grabbed the, the, the lead guitar, somebody had already grabbed the bass. So there was the drum kit left. I thought, well, I better have that then, do you know what I mean? I, so um, are you a frustrated lead guitarist? <laughs> yeah, well, no. <laughs> but, it, yeah, it was sort of like that, do you know what I mean? Just, just really wanting to be able to... To play something, and um, uh, I, the, I just took to the drum straight away. I just just love that hitting things, I suppose. But this is just a lovely picture. I don't know if you can see that all from here, but at the top left there, that that's um, uh, I think you in the middle. Is it, is it Paul Weller on the left? I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah looking rather like a Steve Marriott. Who is that on the right? That's Steve Brooks. He Steve was Brooks. the original uh, guitarist. And I love yep. it. Everyone's wearing baggies, which dates it. Yep. Would that be seventy three? What would that? When, when would that have been taken? Uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that was about that seventy. Yeah, seventy three. Baggies and kipper ties. Yeah, oh, so we were very you, trendy. Where had you yeah. bought those threads? Would, uh, would, did, you, did you go to Harry Fenton or Take Six? I'm trying to think. Which were they? <laughs> no, no, it was uh, Hepworths was the big suit <laughs> shop. Yeah, <laughs> nothing to do with you. His old, his old dad. <laughs> and R. P. L. in the shoe shop, in fact, as well. Yeah. And a lot of it was catalogue stuff as well. You could buy clothes out of the catalogue and, you know, it didn't matter whether it fitted. It, you know, most of it was too long in the arms or the legs or something. Um, but, yeah, there, there wasn't... A, the, the fashion sense was, was pretty dreadful, I suppose. So how did you first meet Paul Weller? At school. Um, this was the sort of crowd we used to hang around um, in, in the music room and swap albums with and that sort of thing. Um, and... Uh, 
that's when uh, Paul and Steve had a little duo, which they used to go out and play the clubs at uh, the weekends. And um, I was sort of in a band with my brother and another guy, um, but we never left the rehearsal studio. We never left the front room practicing. In fact, this is this is me practicing in the bay window. Do you know what I mean? What were you called? Im- was it Impulse? You were called? Was the yeah, Impulse. Yeah, yeah. Seventies. Um, it was. Yeah. Um, well, it was the 70s. So. Exactly, of course. <laughs> There's no reason why you shouldn't. You're absolutely right. Well spotted. Pauling. <laughs> Slander there. So Paul and, is it Steve, were, were, were a bit more outgoing and they were actually going and playing. Yeah, and they, they, they needed a drummer. And um, I think they had a drummer, uh, a guy called Bomber Harris, who um, he decided that he was, he was going to go on holiday rather than do the big gig that we had coming up um, or that Steve and uh, Paul had coming up with the uh, Shield Youth Club. So I sort of jumped in and uh, did that and then stayed with them, really, from that moment onwards. But that was a, just a terrible, terrible show because um, we hadn't really learned the songs properly. We knew how to start them, but we didn't really know how to finish them. So somebody would just sort of say, just stop, you know, right? and we'd all just grind to a halt and then we'd do some other song, you know. Actually, yeah, I must just mention... Yeah, yeah, I was just reading this out earlier. It's so interesting. It's fascinating to find out. It gives you such an insight into what a band's library find out what the set list was like. I won't read out all 47 songs, uh, but on April the 7th, at the, the Woking Workings Men, Men's Club in Walton Road, I think, uh, the group played uh, a set that included Blue Suede Shoes, Blue Moon, Wooden Heart, O'Carroll, Save the Last Dance for Me. It's amazing. All I have to do is dream. Devil in a Heart, Leaving on a Jet Plane. Isn't that fantastic? Again, very 70s. Proud Mary, um, Eight Days a Week, This Boy, Jailhouse Rock, Hippie Hippie Shake, Long Tall Sally, and Great Balls of Fire. I, mean, it's just, I think that's really interesting. That, that, yeah, I mean, you were a covers band, like any other covers well, band. Well, yeah, that's how we got our work, yeah, by, yeah. by playing all these covers of the songs everybody knew. You know, I mean, the, uh, most of the places that we played, people used to go to these gigs because the beer was the right price, not because they used to go and see who was playing. You know, we just happened to be like the sideshow. So the only way that we would uh, um, get any work was to play all these covers. I mean, we used to throw in a couple of our own numbers near the end when everybody was a bit tipsy. You know, they wouldn't notice the difference. Um, but the, we, have, we sort of loved doing it because it was a great way of playing every weekend. Um, but you have to put up with the people sitting at the front with their fingers in their ears, you know, like, like oh, turn it down, and all this sort of thing. Um, but I think it, we got a shot of the, of the satin... Uh, oh, no, oh, no, 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 we were no, going to no, ask no. you this. <laughs> yes, that's, that's a very early band that uh, Rick was in. <laughs> uh, no, this is actually... Uh, is it Iron Butterfly? That's Iron Butterfly. Yeah, because there's a lovely bit in the book where you talk about those early groups. You bought an Iron Butterfly record and you loved Atomic Rooster and Led Zeppelin and, uh, and Deep Purple. and you know, t- Tell us a bit about all of that and, and its oh, influence. Yeah, well, because we... Obviously, at that age, everybody's discovering music and discovering what they like or what they don't like and people would lend their albums to each other. Um, so those were the sort of bands that were going around. There was the Elton Johns and uh, one of the oddities was, was Atomic Rooster. And, but they had a great drummer with them, a guy called Paul Hammond. And he was just brilliant to listen to because you could, you could steal all of his riffs and you think, well, I'll, I'll play that, Phil. I'll do, you know, um, because he was, he was all over the kit. All over. So he was great to listen to for that reason. So that sort of was my early, earliest... Um, uh, 
exposure to other types of music apart from the Rolling Stones or the Beatles really was what people were passing around at school and it was those sort of bands you know and of course prog rock was king at that time but is it quite liberating to be able to talk about that now it's really funny because I was with the NME at that time and you would interview the Sex Pistols and the Jam and the, and the, and the you know the, the Banshees and no one could admit to liking Rory Gallagher or Argent or whatever they, were, they could only like Lou Reed Nicky Pop and Bowie they're all, you know? they're all raised by wolves I know, raised by wolves yeah. <laughs> they just appeared fully but of fully. course they were all listening to what everyone else was listening yeah, to yeah. well yeah this was, this was what came before you know I mean it was um, it was what the the, the whole punk thing was rebelling against really was these massive bands that that um, you know were playing huge arenas and uh, uh, well, really Tommy Rooster <laughs> well maybe not Tommy Rooster <laughs> actually think I think everybody got blamed for that video <laughs> that ELP made of them playing fanfare for the common man in, the, in an empty stadium and everybody yes. thought I've everybody thought that. everybody's like everyone's like that yeah. mm. there was a nice bit where you talk about taking the, the drum pattern from the beginning of Smoke on the Water and using it in um, it's a tube station at midnight, I think it is. Was that right? Yeah, well, you, yeah. You, you, you sort of think, well, I, you just listen to the drum pads and stuff. So you, just, you um, take no notice of the rest of the song. It just That's all I was interested in, was, was stealing bits and pieces yeah, of what other people were doing and, and thinking, well, I'll file that away and then I'll get that out one day when I get the opportunity, you know. that's a, So, yeah, no, there's no holes barred. I mean, I'm not fussy where I, get, where I was getting my influences from or anything like that, you know. But t- talk us through these pictures. Now, this is a picture of the jam in, uh, at, the, at the winning post in Twickenham. What year would this have been? Uh, playing the policeman's ball. Yeah, like that's that. right. Yeah, With a fantastic uh, wall of kind of uh, glass bricks. That, again, this yeah, is... it was ceramic tiles. Yeah, it was like, it was, right. It's not the toilet or anything. It's, no. It might look like it, but it's, it was a bit of... But, um, the venue is actually still there. I think it's on the, the uh, 316. It's still, it's still oh. sitting there, this place. But, yeah, we used to do things... Um, uh, you know, like policemen's balls, they they just say, "Well, we want a band to come in and play cover songs of whatever." Do you know what I mean? And so we would turn up with our kipper ties and white loafers, as you can see, looking very good. But people used to introduce us as Heyman and the Jam. Okay, you know, what I mean, they had no idea that Heyman was a drum kit. You know, it was the make of drum kit. <laughs> did you get the name? Because the name was a bit of an issue, wasn't it? I mean... It, w- it was, yeah. Um, we didn't really... We couldn't think of anything better, so we thought, oh, we'll just stick with this name for the time being. And when we think of a better name, we'll change it. We'll, we'll have a better name, you know. Um, but we never did. We never really liked it, but um, it was pointed out to us that it's not really the name, it's what you make of it. It could be anything, but, you know, it's what people start to associate the name with the type of music that you play. So, um, and after a while... Um, we just thought that it was the music that really spoke for it, and, I mean, and, and, and not really the name of the band. We were always very envious of, of the Clash because we think the, thought the Clash was a great name for a, for a band, you know. Um, <laughs> that, which, which brings us on to this, actually, yes. because this year you talk about in the book that um, that the, the the arrival in 1976 or whenever of Ramon Sex Pistols Clash made the Jam quite envious. Or gave you a sense of direction, wasn't it? Because you were basically playing covers, playing Chuck Berry songs, and well, just, yes. just obviously just yeah. motivated you to, to, to go off in a certain. Um, a well, certain we'd been playing to to a different audience, you know, in in the in the CIUs and the workingmen's clubs, and they they weren't like I said before, they they weren't there to see us in particular. They were just there because the beer was cheap. Um, so to find that there was a scene going on in London um, where you know the, the audience were the same age as us. And that they were there specifically to see 
those bands was, was really exciting for us. So that's why, at that point, we decided we were going to move out of Surrey and Woking and what have you and really concentrate on playing the Nashville and, um, you know, the Three Kings. And, and what particularly about the Ramones, top left there? I mean, what, what was it about the Ramones that, that uh, had an impact on you? Um, I don't... I suppose because they were they were they were the American new wave, weren't they? They were they were they was, uh, and they they played a sort of fifties style, but they'd made it their own and they brought it up to date and etc. And you know, I suppose like most bands, you're always looking to um, uh, you know to create your own sound and and so that you're identifiable. I mean, if, if you put on a Rolling Stones num- number, you know it's the Rolling Stones straight away because it's that there's something about it that's that's got Rolling Stones stamped all over it. And I think that's one of the things that we were searching for was our own identity. And obviously the Ramones were, were one of those bands that you just know a Ramones song. I mean, you know, they, they were really, um, really iconic with their sound. Um, and the Clash had their own sound, the Pistols had their own sound. And that's what, one of the things that we were, you know, we, we sort of strived to, to sort of achieve was to, um, you know, have an identifiable um, uh, sound of our own. Did make you, does that make you raise your game suddenly? The you know being aware of all this that was going on. Uh, did the band suddenly get better or set itself different? I think it, I think more than anything else, it just gave us a, a really clear direction about what we wanted to do. You know, in as much as that, it certainly gave um, Paul the incentive to actually start writing his own songs rather than doing covers. I think we'd had enough. We'd been around the clubs for four or five years doing this stuff. And we were absolutely sick and tired of that list of songs that you have there. Do you know what I mean? We, that's, we were very good at doing them. That's why we, in later in later years, we, we we could quite easily pull out something like David Watts and um, you know, uh, Sweet Soul Music and just do it because we we spent years playing that sort of stuff. It's a lovely idea that you would see the, Ro- the Ramones and think, we are never playing Leaving on a Jet Plane ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this is fascinating because one of the things that you took was, we've got to get some kind of look. You know, they all had their particular looks. And you'd been wearing sort of suits and ties and stuff before. But how did you arrive at that? Well, I think are actually bowling shoes on there. The American bowling shoes, was that the... Um, I think, actually, Elvis, during the 50s, yeah. started wearing these shoes. Yeah. Um, I think it was it was something that we'd found in in Carnaby Street or something. Yeah. Um, they were a step up from the sort of shoes that we had before, um, which I couldn't play drums in because they were great big crepe soles. You know, what I mean, it was like having bricks on your feet. You know, what I mean, they, they were just awful. But these, at least these, were getting closer to our, you know. Um, but I think that was Oxford Street. And yes. people were just ignoring us and get out of the, get out of my way. Do you know what I mean? Trying to breaking into a run to get past you. But you did. You had a uniform, didn't you? you? You had a kind of look, which lots of the bands at the time didn't have. Really, you didn't have any objection to that. Nobody, nobody minded. No, wearing, wearing the suits and the shoes and so forth. No, no, no. I think it was. I mean, the original idea was to. Um, when we, especially when we were playing the clubs that we thought right we're going to do everything we possibly can to get noticed so um, and, and for people to sort of to remember you so that's why we, we started off with white satin bomber jackets and white kipper ties etc so that when we all dressed the same um, it was just something that we felt was going to give us give us an edge that's amazing what you do when you're young isn't it really <laughs> but um, and it sort of led on from there and we decided we, we, we'd go for like more sort of beetle type Suit, you know, like the early Beatles would have. Um, but even then, that only did that didn't really last that long. This particular period, I think, only a sort of year and a half from seventy seven, seventy eight, um, and then we we start, we 
started to uh, well we could afford to buy more clothes we only had one of these we only have, so when we did when we did the states um, and we did something like two shows a night uh, two nights in each town which is four shows um, starting in uh, San Francisco Los Angeles Boston and New York by the time we got to New York the suits could walk around on their own I mean they were just ab- <laughs> they were absolutely soaking wet they never got chance to dry out you know um, I thought Bruce had a spare pair of trousers in the wings there's, some, there's a couple of moments where he runs off stage because his toys ripped the trousers by, well, yeah, by I mean, leaping so <laughs> spectacularly high yeah, well that was later on yeah yeah well, I mean we, they was um, uh, they, we, well to wear tight trousers was obviously a very good thing nobody used to notice but me but every time I'd, I'd watch from the back and he'd have a great split up the back of his trousers where he, you know the stitching's given way and why he'd sidle off um, to have a, he'd have a spare pair you know waiting in the wings which he'd quickly jump into between numbers you know um, I don't know it's, it's just that I think they were they were just a tad too tight at that point you know. <laughs> one, one thing um, there was a, there was an age difference between you and Bruce and Paul. Yeah, there's, there's a year between us. So Paul was a year below us at school. Right. Bruce was a year below, uh, a year above right. me. So um, does that does that stay with you? That kind of age differences they tend to be very important when you're younger. Uh, yeah, I suppose when you're at school, you notice it more. But I mean, once once we uh, we went out into the wide world, no, it didn't make any didn't make any difference at all, really. There was some issue about... Have we got the, the In the City uh, sleeve? Yes, right. There's a, a strange story in this where, where, you know, you kind of forget how threatening punk rock was. You know, the Sex Pistols just uh, vomited very publicly you know, in Heathrow Airport or whatever, and all this kind of palaver was going on. And you had a whole lot of swear words or something on the, on the sleeve of, of In the City, and the pressing plant refused to, to print them. Isn't that right? Well, they sort of down to... Yeah, there was... Um there was supposed to be an insert that went in um, just a sheet of paper that was, that was going to be put in to the In The City album and it had um, some of the lyrics just ticker taped across there, you know, se- selection of lyrics on there and they weren't actually that strong looking back on it, there wasn't anything on there that was too outrageous but the, the women at the packing plant who used to put the albums in the sleeves and, and, then, and therefore the insert into there as well just, just down tools and said we're not, we're not dealing with this rubbish. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not what having it. What did these lyrics? Say? What are these? What are these? Oh, I can't remember. I, I think I've, I might. I mean, they never, it, the album never went out with these um, involved in, you know, actually in there. So the, the record company made the executive decision just to pull the, pull the insert completely and not pack with them in. I mean, we we had to go down to the to the packing. Yeah, you plant. actually went to the pressing plant. Didn't yeah, yeah, to, to, to show them what nice young men. Yeah, you aren't were. we nice? Aren't we lovely? And we turned up and you know. <laughs> Uh, we wear suits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah, charmed them. But it still didn't work. Didn't no, work. no, 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 no. Extraordinary. How important was John Weller in in kind of moving the band forward? Paul's father, who was the manager, and I mean, he was very important in the early days because he would uh, he would borrow the vans for us. He knew a lot of people in the building trade, so. Um, we would borrow vans because we, we just couldn't afford our own van. Uh, so he would he would do that. He would drive the van. He also would go to lots of the workingmen clubs and get us work. And you know he was good with the gab. John was you know I mean he would he would uh, persuade people to give us the work. So that was brilliant. Um, but I mean like us, he didn't have really any any knowledge of the music industry, no more than we had really. So I think when we got signed to Polydor. Um, they sort of they really did take control you know they said well look this is going to be your agent 
this is going to be your solicitor and this guy's going to be your publisher and we're your record company. And they and uh, John quite wisely took the advice from these people. Um, and uh, at that point, he sort of became sort of, not a nanny as such, but he was the, the man who was still on our side who represented us. But as for actually managing the band, most of it was done the bit by the record companies. They would tell us where we were touring, the agent would tell us how we were touring, etc., etc., and we had we had some good people around us, promoters, and etc. Well, we were going to look at some of the picked up one of the groups you supported actually. In uh, oh no, this is Peter Cook. Oh yes, there was, I mean, you appeared on Revolver. Oh, we did. This, this I, Dave yeah. found this this afternoon. This is Peter Cook about to introduce the Jam on a program called Revolver. Anybody remember that? It was in 1978. That's Peter Cook's idea of how to brighten up the pop again. Format. Again, very 70s. There's a girl just in a, in, in a kind of a bra sitting on his desk. You know, quite why I don't know. Do you remember that appearance? No, I think I would actually. I, but I don't know. <laughs> and you're on the old grey whistle test in 78 too. Anyway, yeah, I remember. Bomb. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. How I mean, did that, that go? Who else were you on with? Can you remember? No, I, I can't. No, sorry, it's too long ago for even for me to remember. Um, <laughs> Do all those TV appearances blur from that time? Because you must you were doing everything, weren't you? You know, you have a single out every you know two or three months or whatever. You know, and it was going to number one. Each one was going to number one. You're spending all your time in TV studios. You must uh, yeah, whether we, we there was no time that we weren't busy doing something or other. We were either touring or recording or doing promotional work like Top of the Pops and this sort of thing. So yeah, it, it, eventually it did all sort of merge into you know, especially when you try and think back about um, specific dates and times and what you were doing and you know that sort of thing becomes a bit of a bit of an issue. Um, Can you remember any of that America, those American tours? Because you, you went out and, I mean, A, had trouble kind of getting on with America, I think, to some extent, and B, supported, yes, the Blue Oyster Cult. So the idea of, of yeah. the jam You wouldn't forget these, them, would you? These hairy gherkins in their kind of flared trousers is absolutely extraordinary, but you did. Yeah. Can you remember anything about that? Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it, that was actually quite frightening because we were at the bottom of the bill and we go out there in our suits, you know, and uh, I'm sure, I swear some of the people, they did, didn't used to turn the mics on or they... You know, because there was like several bands on the on the bill, um, uh, and it wasn't really our audience. The uh, some American, I think this is true. Yeah, yeah. Some of the American <laughs> promoters decided that it was much better for us to to be in front of a hair and teeth audience, even for thirty thousand people, than to have anybody out there who was going to bear any relationship to what what they were getting musically. Um, and, and so it was it was hard work, you know. Um, you go on first and nobody took any notice of you at all. But did America understand at first what the jam were about, what they represented? It was quite a... Quite a uh, no. Yeah, it was not a, at all. It's a very not British concept. Yeah. That's a very concise answer. <laughs> I mean, we did, we, we did, um, we did some show with, with um, Bebop Deluxe and there was, we had one fan who turned up and um, he was at the back dancing and they threw him out and we couldn't believe it. I mean, we, and uh, so, but everybody else, American audiences were very strange. They'd sit down and, and you know, uh, just watch the, the bands that were, that were on. Um, but this guy got up and danced and so one of the security guys just said, well, you can't do that in here, Sonny, and threw him out. You know, it was, it was, um, yeah, it's a real shame. I mean, soon after that, we decided that we'd have to do it the hard way and go back and have our own... Um, do our own tour, even though they were smaller venues and etc. It must have been very difficult, what, because you were such so celebrated in Britain, and then you went to America, and it's really hard work. You have to start at the bottom, don't you? Is that very discouraging? Because you, because in Britain you you know everybody loves you and you can't walk down the street and so forth. 
It was a bit strange because, um, yeah, like I say, when we, 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 success was, was big in, in Britain and we were doing some, some pretty big shows. And then you go off to, to America and, you know, Knucklesville, Arkansas and places like that and nobody's heard of you, you know, and it's, uh, you just wonder why you're there sometimes, you know. Um, I think if we'd have broken America, we would have had to have gone to America and stayed there yeah. and lived there and then forgotten everything else. And we just weren't prepared to do that. We weren't going to leave. You know, we love to in Britain and, and Europe. Um, so we, although we sort of made tentative moves to, to, to play the States, I think most of it was because of con- contracts rather than, than actually sort of wanting to go there. I mean, New York was fine, and the big towns, the big industrial towns were, were, were okay. Um, but a lot, a, lot of the, a lot of the places that we went to, um, they just didn't get it at all. You know, it's... Um, we were going to mention this event because I think both Dave and I were there, actually. And this is, this is 1978. Isn't anybody there at Reading Festival 78? Would you remember Sham 69 were on one stage and then they had the jam on another stage. They had this double stage. While one band was playing, the other they'd be putting up the equipment. And so you had all the Sham army uh, and then the kind of, well, broadly, mod supporters, really, for the jam who met in the middle for the most colossal brawl, in which, which was actually happened to be the photographer's pit and also where the journalists were. So all the journalists were just brutally beaten up. And, and uh, yeah, well, happy days. We all had a great time. But, and what happened was something bizarre happened with, uh, with Sham. Who did they bring on? Um, uh, they, they, they went on stage with Steve Hillage. Steve Hillage. And what are the chances was of that? The Steve Hillage. hippie guitarist. So the guitarist yeah. from Gong came on and already yeah. jumps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Most and Sham 69 fans were not broad-minded, were they? Right. In fact, no. Percy gets a bit of a, not a kicking, but a, a slight, uh, you, you make it quite clear, you weren't, they, they were assigned to the same label as you, to Polydor, weren't they? And they you were, weren't an yeah. enormous admirer of Sham 69's oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, I, it's difficult. I, but I do like, I like the guys in Sham, because obviously we got to know them quite well, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was, um, it was, we were headlining, I think, at yeah, that time. Yeah, it was, it was a riot, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, yeah, nothing to do with us, I don't think. It was just, uh, it was just the thing to do those in those days, really, just to um, just to party. I suppose that was. You know. Oh, this is yeah. This is this is just interesting because this was taken as the back cover for actually Smash Hits in December nineteen eighty three, and I just interviewed um, a Paul, and it's just interesting. You talk a lot at this stage in the book about what you call his angry young man stance. And when I interviewed him, and this was for Smash Hits, he wanted to talk about Orwell, <clears throat> he wanted to talk about the Spanish Civil War, he wanted to talk about homage to Catalonia, he wanted to talk about communism. It was really, I mean, it was really interesting. I mean, we let him do it. All credit to Smash Hits, actually. But he really, really, really was accelerated and wound up and had an opinion. You know? So did you see that? Firstly, did you see that developing very fast? And secondly, what was it like to, to deal with that, to live with that every day for you? Um, well, it was great because at, we, at that particular time, I think there was a great release for that because to go on stage and just be really angry, do you know what I mean, was, 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 was fabulous. You could really sort of, you know, let it out on stage. And, um, uh, and, I mean, then there was a lot of... Him. about him being angry there or, or you being angry with him? Or no, 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 no. It was just, it was just uh, a, a great sort of release, I suppose, uh, to be able to sort of go on stage and just thrash about and make this yeah. tremendous noise, you know. Um, I mean, it was always always coming down off the, the adrenaline afterwards, which took a while, you know, or uh, quite a bit to drink as well. Um, and then it was just bang into it the next day as well, you know. Um, 
But I don't know about the positions that he took up, you know, his politics and his... uh, You know, he was very aggressive about a lot of other groups too, you know, in the press. He was always uh, slagging off in the argo of the day, (laughs) the competition. Yeah, I... How did you feel about it? I think that maybe that was an easy stance to take. Um, But it it just seems that um, there was this culture of anger then about everything that was going on that, that, that needed sort of shouting about, really. There was strikes and... You know, people being out of work, and you know, um, there was a lot. To, there was a lot to be angry about, I think. Um, and I think it, it because it just gave Paul a voice, really, to to express himself in that way. I mean, I was quite calm. I was fine. You know, what I mean, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so the the, the um, these are the these are the band's final shows. Yeah, At Wembley. And, you know, how was it communicated to you that the band was breaking up? Um, well, I remember we had a sort of break for each of us to go on holiday in, in, in 82. And when we came back, we, we often would book into a studio to do two or three songs, maybe just to um, get back into the, the working thing. Um, and I can't remember the name of the studio, but we, John said, oh, we've got a meeting, we've got to come and have a... You know, we've all got to sit around this table and have this meeting. And we never had meetings, so this was like yeah, alarm bells sign. ringing straight away. You know. It's my theory about bands, to interrupt you. They never talk about anything, do they? Is that right? Bands don't have meetings. No, we don't. No, no, that's right. They it's, just let things fester. Uh, I don't know about let things fester. We didn't have time for any of that. Oh, right, okay. You know what I mean? It was... Uh, you, you're very much told, right, turn up for this, go there, do this, you know what I mean? And, and uh, Which is fine, because a lot of it is to do what, with what you want to do, which is just go out and play. Um, and so it, when somebody shuffles you onto a bus and that, you don't really care too much about where you're going, but you know that there's a gig at the end of it. Um, so you tend to sort of, you know, get led about, which is terrific, you know, because your life's not your own. Um, but, but nobody, when, when you're told <clears throat> that, that Paul wants to leave the group, I'm not even his father thinks it's a good idea. John, the manager, he wanted it to carry on, you all wanted it to carry on. So how was that? What was the? How did you all react? What did you tell Paul when he told you that? Well, I think um, Paul had obviously talked about this to John <coughs> beforehand, and um, John had done everything apparently to sort of dissuade him. You know, you, this is not the thing you should be doing. All the work that we put into this, um, you know, we all had. John had record company, everybody, um, and it was now we'd actually proved that we were a force to be reckoned with, if you like, musically. We, we could sell albums, we could sell tours, um, and we'd established ourselves, and all of a sudden it was like, right, okay, now we're going to pull, pull, and we're going to stop everything. And it just didn't make sense to anybody. Um, and it was John's baby. He'd sort of been there from the very outset and um, seen it come up and um, uh, become successful, and it was a bit of a dream come true in a lot of ways. And then for Paul to suddenly say that he was leaving and that that, that was that uh, just wasn't right, you know. I mean, he obviously had his reasons, and that's why he wanted, you know. The, the, and we were, I think, mature enough to sort of say, okay, well, if that's that's the way it is, we'll 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 deal with it. We'll and what, just, what you know. were those reasons? They were playing a different type of music, presumably. No, no, no. I mean, the, when we, we we sat down and we had this meeting, and um, uh, it was really Paul was saying that he was. Uh, Felt that he was on a treadmill. He felt that, uh, you know, which we were. You know, it was a, it, as far as I was concerned, it was a rather nice treadmill to be on. You know, um, we were t- doing everything that we wanted to do. But he felt that, um, uh, the, and there was a lot of pressure on Paul to write the songs, to come up with the next single, the next hit, 
You know, because once you get a number one record, there's nowhere else to go except down. Do you know what I mean? It's all right, sort of... And you're, you're sort of judged on those criteria. And we never really felt that that was fair because we didn't get into the music industry just to have number one records. And that wasn't... Although it's a nice sort of marker along the way, it wasn't really the reason. But, of course, then you sort of hit that milestone and then the pressure's on. Right, the record company want... Your sales have got to go up all the time. And you've got to sell more this time than you did last time. Uh, those sort of pressures are constantly there. There's people making remarks, you know, um, about uh, your, your level of success and you've got to keep going and more tours, more albums. And, of course, the more successful you become, the more people want you out on the road to make money out of you because the record companies, that's what they're there for. They're there, like any industry, to up their profits and to make as much money as possible. And we never seem to have the strength to turn around and say, whoa, stop, you know, let's just take six months out of this, you know, and, and control it for ourselves. We were, we were literally being dragged along by the whole uh, industry thing. And um, I think... That's a really interesting point. So if you had taken six months out, do you think it might have carried on? Or do you think well, it was, absolutely... it was suggested. That's a really interesting point, though. Bruce suggested it. He said to Paul, look, if you want to stop and go off and do whatever you want to do, you know, solo career or whatever you want to do, you go off and do that, but don't burn all your bridges, you know. And um, Paul was absolutely adamant that no, 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 not having any of that, we're, it's completely kaput. Um, but so you've, you've talked, actually, you've talked a lot about it just just now, actually far more in a way than you do in the book, because when, when you get to that point in the I book... I I left something out. <laughs> no, 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 just... Because uh, when, when the group ends, and it's really touching, the bit where Rick's writing about this last concert, and looking, you're playing the drums, you're looking at the set list, and you're just counting these songs down, one by one, and thinking you're never going to play them again. I mean, it's a very, very, very touching part of the book. But, but it's, it's interesting, there isn't that much of, a, of your emotional reaction in it. Because it must have been really devastating. I mean, you, you, you've not talked to Paul since, what, 1983, have you? Is that, or not seen him since That's right, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A, that's 30, 32 years or whatever. Oh, uh, yeah, my maths is terrible, but yeah, if you say so. <laughs> um, I mean, myself and Bruce did make every effort to stay in touch with Paul. Me and Bruce stayed in touch. We would, you know, whenever we could, we, could, we would meet up. But Paul just seemed to shut the door on that completely, which was a bit of a shame. Um, because I think... Um, you know, everything had, had gone well. You know, we'd, we'd accepted the fact that, okay, if, if, if that was the end of the band, that was the end of the band. Um, but to sort of not to be able to meet up and uh, uh, um, just to have a cup of coffee or, 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 some, or have a chat or something like that just seemed really um, just, a, just very sad and, very, and, a, and a big shame, I think. Um, so is he absolutely black and white like that? Once he's made his mind up, yeah, like yeah. that. he simply moved on and that's it. It's well, we've sort of seen it happen with girlfriends and, you know, I mean, when Steve Brooks uh, left, before we got signed, he decided to leave. That was it. He was out of Paul's life completely um, for a lot of years. Um, so it was just, I don't know what, what was driving that particular attitude, but that's the way that, that he t- did things. That's the way he saw things, really. Because we often, Mark and I often talk about bands. We all say, all bands will eventually reform, don't we? Yeah, I, I just can't, I can't imagine the it's possible. Well, I'm not holding my breath here. Do you know what I, mean? <laughs> I can't imagine it's possible not to. You know, can you really go to your grave without getting, getting, getting that a chance to find out what it could have been like if you get back? Because when groups break up, they break up at, well, a huge level. You were playing Wembley Arena. But if they came back 30 years ago, they would be literally 20 times as big. You know, you could tour the world playing, uh, playing stadiums uh, for an indefinite amount of time. I mean, my, my view on this has changed a little bit over the years. I think now, I, I, because it's been such a long time, um, 
and I've seen other bands reform, and it's not really worked for one reason or another. And I'm thinking, oh, for God's sake, I'd be like, you know, I, I, I do it for the money. Obviously, I do it for the money, but that'd be the only reason. Which I groups think. are you talking about? Well, like when Zeppelin did their re- re- reform, I know I've got some friends of mine that are big Zeppelin fans, and their expectations of what they were going to go and see was just beyond belief. You know, and and when they came back going, it didn't, wasn't really that good. You know what I mean? The, the, the sound was awful, and they didn't play my favourite song. And you know, they, and it, and they weren't twenty three anymore. You know? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's half the problem is that their singer couldn't hit the top notes that he could hit when he was nineteen. <laughs> yeah, so he didn't it, want to sing the lyrics he wrote when he was nineteen too. So. It just seemed like a mistake to to reform. I mean, it's you know, you think, oh, that, but it's, what, what, you know, easy. All you got to do is get on stage and do it. You know, but if Paul were to turn around tomorrow, because I think Paul has actually been... Didn't Paul get, do something with Bruce recently? They, they're at least talking to each other, aren't they? Am I right? I believe so, yeah. I mean, I think they bumped into each other backstage at some, yeah. uh, in some toilets or something. I don't ask me what they were doing. <laughs> but, um, Moving on. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the ice was almost broken for Paul there. And as much Paul as was to, 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 to ring tomorrow and say, we think you're doing something in the, in the autumn. I'm sure you'd be keen. And you, 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 yeah, it'd be, I think it'd be so. crazy I, I, not to. Yeah, I think, you would, I think we would... I mean, I, I know Bruce would definitely do it. I think I would do it because I, I, I think it would be silly not to. But whether it's the wisest thing to do uh, is, is a different story. I don't know. I, I think a bit of soul-searching, but... Hmm. How can you say no? Do you know what I mean? It's like you absolutely you couldn't say no. no. It would be couldn't. wrong to say. Should he say no? Should he say no? No. But it's you know it is your life, and um, just one one final point. My other theory about bands: a they don't talk, b they're all about the drummer. Despite all the propaganda of the people out the front who write the songs. In the end, the drummer is the most difficult member to replace. Do you agree with me, Rick Buckley? I do. <laughs> yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Buckley. Yes. We're going to have a slight break, a uh, 10-minute break, so you can get a drink. Uh, Rick, unfortunately, the, his book doesn't actually appear for the next, for the next few days, so the, there are not copies to, um, to, to buy, I'm afraid, are there? His publisher couldn't provide. So, but it'll be out... Be out. It's, yeah, it is out on the 11th of May, and you can pre-order it on Amazon. <laughs> and he's probably doing other signings in London. Are you doing other signings in London? Um... I am, but they're sort of like this sort of thing, but like a Q and A. But they've all sold out, unfortunately. So I might put, some, I might arrange some more to do as well. Which, uh, which, if you look at strangetown.net, that's where all the um, the Q and As are, are being advertised for the, for there. So that's strangetown.net. Thanks very much, Rick Buckley. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. <laughs>